started in Genesis 3 last week. We're looking at the fall of man into sin, and the man and uh, woman were originally created in, some say righteousness, some say innocence, a state of innocence, but that is all going to change as of Genesis chapter 3. So we're talking about the fall of man, which I'm putting in verses 1 through 19, and the first thing that happens in this section is the conversation with the serpent. That's found in verses 1 through 5. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this chapter opens with a serpent approaching the woman with a conversation. The conversation is about God. It's about the Word of God. However, this is not an edifying conversation. In fact, it's a devastating conversation. But naturally, we're curious about the serpent. We want to know what exactly is going on here. And last week, we talked about the serpent's creator. By the way, the notes are in the podium in the back, if you didn't get them earlier. We talked about the serpent's creator in verse 1, and the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so we see the maker of the serpent, the snake, the physical snake, is God. And everything God created was originally was, was created good, and so the serpent was created good as well. Then we saw the serpent's identity, and without going through all that again from last week, we get to the end of the Bible before we actually find out technically the identity, Revelation 12, 9, referring back to Genesis 3, says about this, that passage that the serpent of old, talking about the ancient serpent, the serpent in Genesis 3, the serpent of old, which it describes as the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And so Satan obviously commandeered this uh, serpent. He possessed this serpent somehow, and he attempted to use this serpent to try and trick the, the woman. And as, tip, as is typical of Satan, he likes to operate under disguise, and this is a perfect disguise. Given the, Isn't it like he almost... Now, nah, I know he didn't. Isn't it like he almost sneaks into the Bible itself? Genesis chapter 3. There's no introduction to any of this at all. Obviously, he didn't sneak into the Bible. God put his, his, has his inspired word to record this. But he's so sneaky, so crafty. So Satan speaks to the serpent. And then we looked at the serpent's nature, and, or ultimately Satan's nature, and we saw that word crafty in verse 1. He's crafty, which in this context points to one who is deceptive, one who deceives and you'll see that throughout the course of the conversation. And then we began the serpent's temptation. How does the serpent, controlled by the evil one, by Satan, get the woman to fall? How does he, what does he do? Well, he engages her in conversation. Again, the conversation is about the Word of God in particular, about God, about the things of God. Well, actually, specifically, it's about Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let's go back and read that again. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, 
for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so we said last week, we warned last week to be careful uh, to whom you are listening and to what you're listening to when it comes to a discussion about the Word of God. When you're listening to someone speak about the Word of God, whether it's in a public setting or a private one, is that person actually speaking the Word of God? Or is it just his spin on the, the Word of God adapted for his own purposes? In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we're able to listen in on this conversation that the serpent gives, that Satan gives, and analyze how he works. First of all, serpent and Satan will cast doubt upon the word of God. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed has God said. You could translate that, Is it really the case that God has said? Or we could say, So God has actually said this? The idea is to raise, and we're not reinventing the will here, you know, I know you've heard this before, but the idea is to raise questions in the mind of the listener concerning the truth of God's word and the integrity of God himself. Think about that. Has God really said this? You mean God really said that? Strange that God would say that. Now, have you ever heard people say statements to that effect? They'll, they'll, they will question the biblical account of a worldwide flood. You mean that you're telling me the flood really was worldwide? There was really a flood like that? They will say things like, you mean there's really a hell? I heard someone who used to be a Christian, says he was, now says he's not, say, well, why would I believe in that? That's, that's a satanic question right there. It's coming from his father, the devil. Now, you'll hear people say that. You'll hear people say, well, do you really believe in the exclusiveness of the gospel? The gospel is really the only way to heaven? Do you really believe in the miracles of the Bible? In effect, they're saying, did God really say that? Does he really mean that? Surely there must be some mistake. And you'll hear these kind of things. And if Satan can get people to doubt the word of God, then he will hurt their confidence in the scriptures. They'll begin to doubt, begin to question. In fact, when people are doing this, Satan is using them to discredit God himself. You have to understand that. So Satan casts doubt on the word of God. Secondly, he misinterprets the word of God. Misinterprets verse 1. Now, the serpent of old will try his hand at hermeneutics. Do you know what hermeneutics is? It's a science and art of, of interpreting the Bible. You may have not ever heard the word hermeneutics. All you theologians out there know about this word. It's the science and art of interpreting the Bible. They call that hermeneutics. It's in your notes, as a matter of fact. Interpretation of the Bible is very important. What do you think that we do every week when we get up here? We're attempting to interpret the scriptures. We pray that we do this correctly. Very important to do this right. We're dealing with eternal truth. Now Satan's going to make his first attempt at interpreting the scriptures. And fortunately for him, he's only got two chapters to deal with. Genesis 1 and 2. He can't mess that up. There's no way you can mess that up, right? Two chapters. Now when we, by the way, when you preach, you have to think through, when you preach a passage in the Bible, you're always thinking about what the rest of the Bible says. You're always thinking through all of that. He doesn't have all that. He's got two chapters. Surely he can't mess this up. Two chapters. There's a book out there called The Hermeneutical Spiral. How many people have ever heard of this book? <laughs> the Hermeneutical Spiral. Well, Satan's hermeneutics, which have nothing to do with that particular book, is, are, is about ready to spiral out of control completely. He says, indeed, has God said, look at verse 1, you shall not eat from any 
You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The idea being you can, you can eat of none of these trees. Is that what God is telling you? You can eat of none of these. This is an absolute prohibition being stressed here by Satan. He's saying, you're telling me you can't eat of any of these trees at all? That's what he's saying. You mean that God is so stingy he would withhold from you all the trees of the garden. That's how God is. Now, is that what God said? Well, he did say the word any, but look at, chapter, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden, oh, any, there's the word any, for any tree of the garden you may f- eat freely, he says. So what the serpent said is just the opposite of what God said. God said you can eat of any tree you want. In fact, you can eat freely of any tree your heart desires. However, there is one tree that's off limits. Just one. Not more than one, just one. I'm telling you, you cannot, you definitely can't eat of that tree. There's plenty of trees. I'm giving you plenty of trees to eat from. Just don't eat of that one tree. And so God, God's emphasis is on his liberality, his benevolence, his generosity, his abundant goodness, his overwhelming provision. Look how I've provided for you. I've given you all these trees to eat from. Satan, however, fails Hermeneutics 101 because he botches the interpretation. His emphasis is on God's restrictiveness. God has restricted you. You're telling me you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Some uh, trans- Well, actually, one translation that I know of, maybe more, says every, but all modern translations say any, and because there's an absolute prohibition being stressed, God is putting unnecessary limitations on you. The implied thought here is from Satan, God's not very good after all. God's restricting you. He's not letting you in on everything here. And clearly the one who is possessing the serpent has total disdain for God, total disregard for God, no reverence for God. He wants to impugn the character of God. And he says things like this. And this is how Satan wants us to think about God. This is how Satan wants people to think about God, that he's restricting our lives. That if we follow him, follow him he's taking away our enjoyment. There's no fun in life. God is basically a legalist. There's too many rules. Now, I've been in... I've been in the height of legalism, trust me. I do mean the height of it, like you probably would never believe. God's not that way. Too many rules, too many regulations, no fun. That's what Satan wants us to believe, that we can never reach our full potential as long as we're serving God. He's put such a damper on our existence, making life so difficult for us. A lot of people think this. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to, yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want to believe someone will witness to an individual say, I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe the gospel because, and they'll give a reason. Here's my reason. Somebody else says, here's my reason. Here's the, if you want to know the truth about the matter, the real reason oftentimes is they don't want to give up their sin. They'll put out some smoke screen. That's what it is, a smoke screen. The fact of the matter is if you look behind what they're, the smoke screen, what they're saying is, I don't want to give up my fun. I have freedom. As an unbeliever, I can do whatever I want to. I can have fun and, and sin all I want. And if I accept the gospel, it's going to be a miserable experience. But the truth is this. Those who cast off God, those who cast, cast off his word, they do their own thing. They're the ones paying a steep price of misery. They're the ones not enjoying They're the ones walking down a dead end street. Talk to those people 10 years later and see what they've gone through. And they'll tell you heartache after heartache after heartache. Many times I've heard the same story. They thought they would find happiness through their lifestyle, but they only find heartache. And while we're on the subject of satanic hermeneutics, 
Somebody can write a book on satanic hermeneutics maybe in this room. But the book's probably already been written, maybe several times over. Notice how the serpent refers to the Lord here. He says, indeed, has God said? He calls him God. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, it's not wrong per se. It's just that in this section of Genesis, from chapter 2, four, uh, chapter two verse 4 through chapter 3, the name of God used repeatedly, again and again, is the Lord God. Not Genesis chapter 1, the name God was used to describe his sovereign work of creation. Now, we're seeing the Lord God again and again. Satan doesn't say the Lord God. Indeed, has the Lord God said? He doesn't say that. He said, as God said. Because the name Lord is personal to God's people. And guess what? Satan's not one of God's people. He doesn't want to say this. And even the woman caught up in the conversation answers and says, well, God said... She gets caught up in this, and so this seems a bit off, even that part. So we ask the question, though, people ask the question, is it really so bad that people misinterpret the Word of God somewhat, or they're inaccurate, or they're imprecise? Do we have to be so precise? Do we have to aim for precision always in this job of interpretation? The answer is yes. It's a very sloppy way to handle the truth, for one thing, to let it slide, to let things slide. For another, it can lead to a misunderstanding of the person of God. If we're not accurate, striving for accuracy, we're not perfect. But if we're under God's strength, not striving for accuracy in our interpretation, that can lead to a misunderstanding of God. It can lead to a warped view of doctrine, which in turn leads to what? A life that doesn't please God. Because bad doctrine usually leads to bad living. And right doctrine often leads to right living, should always lead to right living if we apply that. Now, we can have minor disagreements over minor theological issues. I'm not talking about that. When we get to Genesis 6, you guys can argue about Genesis 6, 1 to 4. <laughs> I'll probably let Mike come up here and do that sermon. But we want to get the scriptures right. As 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God as a workman, right? As a workman, a guy who's working hard, doesn't need to be ashamed because he's accurately handling the word of truth. That's what we're supposed to strive for. So Satan casts doubt upon the scripture. He misinterprets the scripture. And then thirdly, he contradicts the word of God. He contradicts it. Now the woman tries her hand at hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, interpreting the Bible, right? She's going to try her hand at hermeneutics, and I'll give her some credit for trying, but I don't think she's going to be teaching the class anytime soon. She makes three changes in God's wording of the command of Genesis 2, 16 and 17. First of all, she fails to emphasize fully God's abundant provision. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, oh, let me, let me respond to what you just said. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. And that is true. Except she leaves out the word any, which Satan seemed to major on, and she leaves out the word freely. You may freely eat, with the exception of one. And the way she words it is more restrictive than God words it. You know, some people are more restrictive than God. Some people are more, uh, they're, they're, they're stronger in their convictions, of their, I should say their preferences, than God is. God says, here's how things should be done. They say, no, I gotta, I'm holier than that. And Eve is, 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 is being more restrictive than God said. God said, you can eat anything, any tree freely except for one. So she's already taken a cue from the serpent. 
Secondly, she adds to what the Lord says. She added the phrase, or touch it, in verse 3. She says, God has said, you shall not eat from this tree or touch it, lest you die. Can't eat it, we can't touch it, can't even touch it. Now, God didn't say that last part. Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Maybe she felt it best not to touch it. I'm not saying she should touch it. God, it's just The fact is, God didn't say it. It's just not accurate. You know, things, when, when I hear, and when I, if I say something that's not accurate about the Bible, that bugs me. That really bothers me, even one word sometimes, oftentimes. Thirdly, she minimizes the penalty for disobedience. Now, I'm not saying we should stand in judgment of preachers, criticize them for every word they say. They say a lot of things up here. And as I quoted to Bill James, uh, who's Stephen's father-in-law, who's the King James guy, I quoted to Bill James, there one if not, uh, in a multitude of words, there one if not sin. In other words, when you say a lot of words, sin is not lacking. You're going to say something eventually that is going to be not what it should be, so don't criticize preachers for every single word they say if you know they love the Lord and they want to preach the word of God. Thirdly, she minimizes the penalty for disobedience. She quotes the Lord as saying, here's the biggest problem of all. She, said, she says in verse 3, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Notice the words, you will die. However, is that what God said in Genesis 2, 17? He says, if you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, so what? It's just a word, one word. But the addition to that one word is very is crucial because it's a strong prohibition. The, what God said here is much stronger than Eve said. Eve doesn't emphasize this as she should have. But this is what happens when you listen to Satan. This is what happens when you listen to the lost world and you start tuning into them. This is what happens when you listen to professing believers who are giving you advice about what they think God said but not what he actually said. This happens all the time. You'll, you'll get all twisted in your thinking. After a while, you yourself will be drifting from the truth. Now, Satan's already trying to create doubt in the mind of the woman, and now, in verse 4, he moves in for the kill. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. This is an outright contradiction to Genesis 2.17. It's the same basic instruction. As Genesis 2.17. Look at Genesis 2.17. God says, you will surely die. Satan says, you surely will not die. That's a flat-out denial of the truth. Of the penalty for sin, that the penalty for sin is death. Satan denies that the penalty for sin is death. Paul will later say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But Satan says, no, it's not. No, it's not. So people who disregard God's punishment for sin and death, they are choosing to follow the word of Satan over the word of God, and you hear people talk about that. Satan even goes so far to say that, in fact, the very best thing you can do is to eat of that tree. That's the best thing you can do. Let's, wait a minute, we started from just the opposite of all this, and now he's saying, wait a minute, the best thing you can do is eat from the tree. Don't you realize the benefits you're missing by not eating of the tree, look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow, it's going to be great. Basically, he says, you guys are blind right now. You're clueless as to what really is going on. But when your eyes are finally wide open, you're going to discern things you never saw before. You're going to understand things you never 
understood before. It's going to be a whole new world. God knows all this, by the way. Notice how he puts God down again? God knows this. Well, why, why would He knows this. He knows you're going to experience new freedom. In fact, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, all they know right now is good. That's all you guys know. You guys, you're clueless. All, all you know is good. But now you have this golden opportunity to know evil as well. You're going to have the best of both worlds, good and evil. You're going to share in the knowledge God himself has. You're going to reach your full potential. These are the promises Satan makes. He tries to make God look as if he does not want what's best for them. But Satan wants your best life now. He wants what's best for you right now. God's holding back. He's not looking out for your best interest. But I am, Satan says. And this is nothing more than a pack of lies from the father of lies. Because Romans 8.28 says, we know that God works all things together for good. For those who, those who love God. Romans 12.2, the will of God is good. So Satan is like a conniving salesman, you know, making his presentation. You know, you've seen these guys making this presentation. And it sounds irresistible. Why? If you just buy this product, your life is going to be so wonderful. But actually, Satan is setting them up for a scam, a major scam. His product is not going to only do any good. It's going to cause absolute harm. And so the conversation with the serpent ends. That brings us secondly to the compliance of the couple in verses 6 and 7. The compliance of the couple. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. Now, after the conversation with the serpent, with Satan, the woman begins to contemplate the perceived benefits of the tree. She looks at the tree, starts thinking about, maybe this is beneficial after all. The tree, and, and the first benefit that she considers is this. The tree is good for food, it says in verse 6. It's good for food. That's an appeal to the appetite, an appeal to nourishment. The woman does a quick evaluation. She makes a determination that this tree is good for food. Well, there's nothing wrong with food. I actually ate some food today. It was good. We need food in order to live. Food is good. Food is legitimate. But this food is not legitimate. This food is illegitimate because God has said so. The woman could have moved on to another tree, any tree she could have gone to and eaten from that tree, but no, all of which were perfectly legitimate. No, she stops here at this tree. Now, remember in chapter 1, when God created his world, he, again and again, he saw that it was what? It was good. That's his evaluation. He saw that every part of his creation was good, and he makes that evaluation. Now, the woman makes an evaluation. She decides that this, the fruit from this forbidden tree is good. Same evaluation that God made. This is good, except on a different level. Did, did God declare this tree to be good? He never, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, we got a theological dilemma in the room right now. Yes, I understand what Dr. Martin just said. You know, every time you study the scriptures, you see things you didn't see before, and then you start asking questions. And then you could be in this pulpit, and see, I've, I've been in this pulpit and read the scripture and said, oh, I never saw that before until right now. Thank you, Dr. Martin. We'll think about that later. 
and we'll pass over that subject for right now. But what did he say? He said that if you eat this tree, it's going to lead to death, right? It's going to lead to death. So the woman makes an evaluation independent of God. That's the problem here. She approves of what God disapproves of. She evaluates this and says, no, this is, this is, uh, this is good for food here. But she relies solely on her own ability to determine what is good. And we often have the tendency to do the same thing. We might just put our stamp of approval on something and say, well, this is a good thing here. But really, God may say, no, it's going to lead to death. You know, the proverb says there's a way that people think leads, is good to go, but it leads to death. And, you know, we may put our stamp of approval on something that God abhors, something that will harm a spirit. How many times have you heard young couples, for example, in love, supposedly, we're in love, we want to get married, and yet the guy is not saved or not growing in Christ or really not a true Christian, and you say, hey, we're warning you not to go that direction, and they go that direction anyway, and there's a million things like this. And we think we know what's best. But this is where discernment comes in from. We must be discerning people because God makes plain in his word what he approves of, what he disapproves of. The woman admits in verse chapter 3, verse 3, that they're not supposed to eat of this tree. But after listening to the devil, now she sees it in a different light. Oh, maybe it's not that bad after all. In fact, it's beneficial. This is good for food. Why let good food go to waste? Is she's thinking. And so... That's why we need to be in God's word every day. She's, we're talking about God's word, which things are going kind of haywire with this whole subject. If we're in God's word of, of every day, it's going to help us to remember what God said. This is very important because we have such short memories. It's going to help us to reinforce in our minds what God has already said. Very important. I can read the scripture today and not read it for the next week and not remember what did he say about it. But if I read it every day, Every day it's being reinforced in my mind. It's going to help me not to rationalize away the truth as Eve did. Secondly, it's going to help build the sermon in me to properly evaluate circumstances and people and temptations and all these things that come my way. Then I can put a proper evaluation like God did in chapter 1. Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verses 11 to 14 is a section dealing with our response to the word of God. Some believers were not maturing in the faith. I take it that way. And so they were acting like spiritual infants. In Hebrews 5, 12, and 13, you can read this section later, says that those spiritual infants have come to need milk and not solid food. They're babies. You give babies milk, not able to stomach solid food. Hebrews 5, 13, for everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. Infant, Not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Not Are you accustomed to the word of righteousness? Do you partake daily of the word of God? Think about that. These people, some of these people were not accustomed to that. Verse 14 says, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern what? Good and evil. How do we learn to discern good and evil? How do we have our senses trained to discern what's good and evil? We consume the solid food of the word of God every day. And we grow in discernment. Very important because our generation is one that is lacking greatly in discernment of spiritual things. Once, once we're discerning, we're able to discern because we understand the scriptures, then we're able to evaluate things in life from God's perspective. God's perspective is one thing, Eve's was another. 
And if we're not taking the word of God seriously, we're going to be like the infants in Hebrews. And so these two opinions about this tree, worlds apart. Eve said the tree is good for food. But God says, well, you're going to die if you eat that tree. Secondly, the tree is a delight to the eyes. Verse 6, it's attractive. It appeals to her. So there's something beautiful about it. But isn't that the way of temptation? There could be evil could be hiding under a layer of beauty. That's the problem. That's why it's so tempting. It appeals to our flesh. It attracts us to it. And people throughout the Bible are falling into temptation left and right because of the same reason. It looks good. It's a delight to the eyes. Just one illustration of which you could give many here. In Joshua chapter 6, God told Israel to destroy Jericho. And he says, do not, because they're wicked, do not partake of the spoils of war. Don't take anything you find there. He forbids them to do that. But a guy named Achan decided to take matters in his own hand, ignore the command of God, the plain command of God, and he takes some clothes and some money. But he's found out, and he's caught, and he's punished. Why did he take it? Well, and it, it, he admits his guilt. Joshua 7.21, he admits his guilt of his crime against God, and he confesses this. This is what he says. You know, he says, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful robe, I was looking after we had wiped out Jericho, and I saw this robe. It was beautiful, really beautiful. And I saw 200 shekels of silver, and I saw a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them, and I took them. Of course, sin begins in the heart, but Achan saw something that, that attracted his attention. He saw something he liked. He's attracted to the beauty of the garment and the appeal of the silver and gold, and he takes it. But understand that all that glitters is not gold. It can look good on the outside. You could be walking right into Satan's trap, which Eve was about to do. Thirdly, she says the tree is desirable to make one wise. Did not the serpent promise her that her eyes would be open, that she would be like God, that she would understand both good and evil? She obviously is believing the promises of Satan right here. The word wise indicates insight. I'm going to have insight, even success. I'll have success. From eating of this tree, she begins to think this way. She thinks now she has this opportunity to reach a status unknown to her before this. She has the potential to be wise, like God is wise. The danger here is one of pride. But remember who is promising this. This is not, we talk about the promises of God. This is not the promise of God. This is the promise of a serpent controlled by the devil. Eating of this wisdom will lead, eating of this fruit will lead to wisdom, all right, only not the kind she expects. I thought I couldn't help but think of James chapter 3 as, we, as I read through this. James 3, 13 and 18 tells of two kinds. Did you know there's two kinds of wisdom? Not just God's wisdom, there's two kinds. One, James says, that is earthly, natural, and demonic. Categorizes it like that. It's earthly, natural, demonic. Do you know there's such a thing as demonic wisdom? Wisdom that is worldly, wisdom from the world, wisdom that originates in Satan. And do you know what kind of fruit that bears, that wisdom? James tells us the kind that promotes bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and disorder and every evil thing. So whenever you see in a church disorder, you have selfishness, you have fighting, you have splitting of the church and so on. Satan is at work with this kind of wisdom. That's what James says. And then there's another kind of wisdom that's from above. 
I like when he says that, the wisdom, but the wisdom that is from above, he says, the heavenly wisdom. That kind of wisdom is different from the satanic, uh, demonic, worldly wisdom. That, that kind of wisdom is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy, and it's full of what? Good fruits, he says, without hypocrisy. But Eve is being led into the wrong kind of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. You don't get godly wisdom by listening to satanic uh, information or by adopting a worldly philosophy. Jimmy read that verse this morning, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says. And the knowledge of the Holy One, the knowledge of God, is understanding. That's what we need to strive for, the wisdom of God. Now, I've heard people talk about a, sin, a particular sin they've committed, and I've heard them say, well, you know, because I've committed the sin, I kind of, they, they, they act like they have an advantage over other people. I now understand things that no one else understands. Other people that have not committed the sin, they don't understand this. I know what it's like to go through this. I understand this. And they give you the impression that they have this superior understanding. But let me tell you what they have. They have, the only thing they have that they've gained is heartache and misery. That's all they gained. They didn't gain an advantage over you. You don't want to go that direction. You know, people say, I've heard Stephen say it recently, I, I don't want to give a testimony of my salvation because it's not... It's not dramatic enough. You know, a person says, well, I was saved, I was on drugs, and I committed this sin, and I committed that sin, and I was a drunkard and all this stuff, and God saved me from my sins, and it sounds very dramatic, and I'm thankful for those people that have been saved, very thankful. But if you grow up in a Christian home, you say, well, I grew up in a Christian home, and I heard the, word, the gospel preached, and I got saved, and everybody says, oh, this is a boring testimony. But there's no advantage to be gained from sin, none at all. You don't have a superior position over other people because of it either. You, you have an opportunity to witness to people, maybe, in a better way, that we can't, maybe other people can't witness to. Listen, we're all sinners, by the way. I'm not saying that any of us are better than other people. We're all sinners saved by grace. Satan in the world may promise to make all your dreams come true. Everything's going to be so wonderful. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day after this. No problems. But you had better heed the warning in 1 John 2, 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world, let me tell you, is passing away. It's temporary. And also it's lust, going by the wayside. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So after giving thought and contemplation to this tree of knowledge and evil, Eve makes the worst decision of her life. It says in verse 6 of Genesis 3, she took from its fruit and ate. Well, there's a, that's a life-changing decision in the whole of Scripture right there. According to 1 Timothy 2.14, we said this already, Eve was deceived when she fell into the transgression. Nevertheless, she still sinned. She, still, she knew the command of God, and she still disobeyed what she knew. So she's still at fault. But she doesn't stop there. It says in verse 6, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. I wonder if she would have just stopped where she was. We don't know the questions to all these things, the answers to all these things. We have a lot of questions. According again to 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam is not deceived. He's in full compliance. He has full knowledge of what's happening. He's willingly and deliberately disobeying God's commandment as set forth in Genesis 2. 
16 and 17. That's the, the whole issue, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. You know, even, Eve is willing even to share with her husband in her disobedience. And she does. She gives the fruit to her husband. Notice she doesn't say anything. Look at verse 6. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't try to persuade him in any way. She doesn't tell him all the thoughts she had in her heart about the tree. It doesn't say that. She does not try to explain the perceived benefits of partaking of the, of the fruit. Adam doesn't say anything either. He says nothing. He just took the fruit and ate it. He doesn't argue with Eve. He doesn't say, don't you? But God said, we sh back in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God said we shouldn't eat of this tree. He puts up no resistance. He doesn't he hesitate at all. He just eats of it. It's clear that Eve needed to do nothing except to hand him the fruit. Nothing at all. And he takes it. That's why I said I say that Satan deceived Eve. And Satan got the serpent got to Eve, and Eve got to Adam. It just took her handing the fruit to him. That was enough. That's all it took. No words necessary. In that moment, he had a greater allegiance to Eve than he had to God. Now he's to love Eve as his wife, but he's to love God more. You know, sometimes we have to make choices that go against the grain of the family. Family members are selfish, and they say, we're not going to serve God. They don't say that, professing Christians. If they don't serve God, if they don't go to church, if they don't serve him in the capacities that God has given them, if they don't commit themselves to the scriptures, if they don't pray and all these things, you have to make the unpopular choice in the family to say, I am going to serve God. I am going to come to church. I am going to live for the Lord. I'm going to do the things I need to do. Adam made the wrong choice, and so did Eve. Both of them did. You know, Eve was meant to be a helper suitable for Adam. Remember that? But the only thing she's doing right now is helping him to sin. That's all she does. There's something else here. New information not recorded earlier. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, uh, she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, people talk about that. With her. Wait a minute, I thought the, only, the conversation was with Eve and Satan. Eve and the, ser and the serpent. And it certainly started out that way. Nothing said about Adam being a part of it. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and you see him talking to the woman. He's not talking. You don't see him talking to Adam per se. But after the conversation, it says the man is with her. So which is it? Kind of difficult for me to determine because I'm paranoid about everything in the scriptures. That is, I want to get it right. And so I look at things ten times and say to myself, did I get that right? I always do that. I will tell you this. Every time in this satanic conversation, verses 1 to 5, every time you see the word you or your, it's in the plural, not singular. Every single time. So the serpent is always referring to both the man and the woman, and so does Eve. Look at verses, let's read verses 1 to 3, and I'll show you what he says. He says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, y'all shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, y'all shall not eat of it or touch it or you will die. Actually, when he talked to Adam, it was in the singular in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But he obviously informed Eve 
of this information before Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So every time he says, he's talking in the plural of both of them. He's referring, he's at least, put it this way, he's referring to both of them every time. Now, you can't make that determination in our modern English translations because it just says you. However, let me say this. And by the way, whenever I refer to another translation, never endorsing a translation wholesale, I'm just pointing out a fact. I point out good and bad things about all translations. You know that. You know I'm an equal opportunity offender when it comes to translations. The King James Version does show the difference with its use of ye and thou. Everybody makes fun of the, of the these and thous. They're there for a reason. That's old English. But ye is always plural in the King James. Thou is always singular. So you know right away. And there's always the word ye in this section here. It's plural. So the man could have very well have been a listener to this conversation from the beginning without giving any input, but it seems strange to me that he says nothing. But maybe he didn't take the lead like he should have. It could also be the woman and the serpent spoke of the man without the man being there. You know, sometimes in a conversation, you know, I may speak of me and my, I may say my wife and I, I may be talking to Jeffrey, saying he's not there. She's at home, and I may say my wife and I are going to go to Walmart. No doubt we will before it's all said and done. Do that all the time. We say that all the time, right? So in that case, the, the man appeared later on, after the conversation, late in the conversation. I don't know. I tell you what, I'll let you wrestle with that. That's your project for the week. Think through that one. At any rate, when the man, when the woman gave the fruit to the man, he's with her. As to the type of fruit, I remember a guy in a Sunday school class one time said, "But when Adam ate of that apple, I smiled. I didn't say anything." We don't, did this happen in the state of Washington? We don't know what kind of fruit it was. In fact, there's only one kind of fruit mentioned in this section here. Did you know that? What is it? It's a fig. Verse 7, they sow fig leaves together. What now, here's a, here's a bizarre thought, by the way, just to throw out this. What if they partook of a fig tree, and then they made fig leaves from that same tree, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I'm sure that did not happen. But it's something that's interesting. See, Dr. Martin got me earlier with one. But we don't know. We don't know. It doesn't matter what it was, whether it was an apple, whether it was a fig, pear, or that tree doesn't, that fruit doesn't even exist anymore. We don't know. What matters is they disobeyed the plain command of the Lord. We don't need to argue about what type of fruit it was. Look at verse 7, chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. Satan was right about one thing. The eyes of both of them are open. True enough. There's always a little truth, right? There's no truth in Satan, but there's always a little. The little truth that there is is designed to be a, deceit, a, a lie. But they have, now they're, they have this understanding now they didn't have before. But it's not the understanding they thought they would get. Satan delivered, you know, he gives promises. He doesn't deliver on the, on the goods, though. They did, they did acquire new knowledge, knowledge of evil. That's what they got. But the benefits of the tree Eve contemplated, no, none of that happened. This is going to be so great. I just look at this tree and I think this is going to be so great if I can eat this tree, so wonderful, but none of it is. They're not like God, as Satan promised. In fact, they're more unlike God than they've ever been. God made them in his image, and now they've marred that image. They've distorted that image. Maybe I could say worse words than that. Every part of their being has been affected and infected as if, as if by a disease. Their mind, their bodies, everything 
is different now. They're not wiser now than for having partaken of the fruit. They're stupid for having done it. They are, they've blown it. Their eyes are open, all right, but in the knowledge they now possess is that they're naked. Here's what they know now. Oh, we're naked. That's what we discovered. I don't think that's what Eve had in mind. You know, this is the first time they've ever sinned, and they find out it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You know, all of us have this problem. We want to sin. We see something we want, want to do that's wrong, evil. And only when, when that happens do we learn, wow, that was not worth it. We need to know in advance it's not worth it. It's not worth it. In chapter 2, verse 25, before the fall, they're naked and not ashamed. Now, after the fall, they're naked and realize we've got to do something about the situation. This is totally different here. And so they, fig, they sew fig leaves together. Now, I've read that fig leaves are two statements I've read from different guys. Fig leaves are the biggest leaves in Palestine, and I read another statement they're the biggest leaves in Canaan. Maybe that's why they use fig leaves. To, to, they were large leaves to cover up their loss of innocence. And this is the solution they come up with. We've got to come up with a solution. What can we do? This is it right here. This is the best we can come up with. The loin coverings, it says at the end of verse 7, suggest this is a skimpy outfit, not much to this outfit at all. And their new knowledge of their nakedness showed that this sewing project was probably done in haste, hurriedly. Let's hurry up and cover up. We've got it. It's a desperate effort to get clothed. They're embarrassed. Not only are they stupid, they're embarrassed. Not only does sin make us stupid, it makes us embarrassed. And we find ourselves hurrying to try to fix the mess we've created. Hurry up. Cover up. Let's, let's try to look presentable here. Let's, maybe nobody will notice. Let's tie up the loose ends. You know, people in crime, that commit crimes, they try to cover their tracks. So nobody will know what happened. We do this all the time with sin. But someone does notice, and that person is the Lord. This is the temptation to fall of man. We'll continue next week, but before we go, <clears throat> I want to show you how temptation should be handled. We just saw how it should not be handled, how they botched it all up, and, and we follow in their wake, and we botch it all up. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Let's see how temptation should be handled. Luke chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 to 13, then just make a few comments. How should temptation be handled? Luke 4, verse 1. The true and better Adam, Stephen, comes along. Genesis 4, 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after he was baptized and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Another temptation. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they end, had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, let this, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and put, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels, here we go again with his hermeneutics, He will, he will command his 
angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, what's the difference between this temptation and the one of our first parents? Well, unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus took the word of God very seriously. He didn't try to downgrade it in the conversation, in a conversation with Satan. He meets every temptation thrown at him with scripture. We're always talking about scripture here. Reading scripture, thinking about scripture, being controlled by the scripture, applying. Why do we do this all the time? Here's why. Extremely important. If Jesus thought he should do that, why don't I? He also gives God the utmost reverence during the temptation, something Adam and Eve failed to do. He's also never, notice he never contemplates the devil's offers. He never thinks, how wonderful it would be if I obeyed Satan and what he said. Satan just made a suggestion here. How wonderful it would be if I obeyed what he said here. He never does that, like, like Eve did. Furthermore, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is very important. Before, throughout, and after the temptation. Look at verse 1. Matthew, uh, Luke 4, 1. This is also found in Matthew 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and gets ready to enter the temptation. Look at chapter, verse 14. Or verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee, how? In the power of the Spirit. He came in the power of the Spirit. He goes through the temptation. He returns in the power of the Spirit. He, never, he doesn't fail. He doesn't fail in the temptation. He never does. We should follow him. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Adam and Eve were in full compliance with disobeying God. Jesus was in full compliance with the will of God. If we follow him, we will be in full compliance with the will of God as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful again for your word. Help us to learn from it. Help us to learn from Jesus. Lord, we pray we'll cast ourselves upon him, upon the Holy Spirit, for the power to live holy, uh, that we'll cast ourselves upon the word of God so we can fill our minds, so we can be, be controlled, as Mike has been preaching lately, by the Spirit, not by the flesh, so we can live a life that pleases you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.